Should you buy a Canon EOS R5? Will I be switching to Canon? Does 8K matter today? And what will Sony do from here? I'm your host, Joshua Milligan. Welcome to the podcast. And today, we're going to talk about all of this and more. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Thanks, guys, for tuning in to this week's episode of the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm so excited. There's so much going on in the camera world today that it is nuts. It seems like with the cancellation of NAB, camera companies everywhere are doing web drops and web announcements, and we have a lot to discuss today. The headliner is the Canon EOS R5. I know that that camera is making waves everywhere in the Canon world as people are wondering, where has this been the whole time from Canon and is this the new Canon? And guys, I hope it is. It has been a long time since Canon was a true innovator in the camera world and it's great to have them back. Are they really back though? That's a question I wanna cover today. Last week, Canon dropped the EOS R5 full specs, everything, essentially everything but the price. There is a few unknown things left like record times and, and things such as that, but we have that to come and the price, but they did cover most of the full specs of the camera. And they also dropped the full announcement of the Canon C300 Mark III for the middle of the road shooters, the guys that do this pretty much full-time for a living that don't wanna work with mirrorless cameras but are working on more mid-tier, mid-level projects. Um, people in that world are very familiar with the Canon C-series cameras. You have the lower end C100, C100 Mark II. You have the C200, which is kind of a step up from there. You have the older C300 and the C300 Mark II, which is a very popular camera used on shows uh, all over the world, reality shows, a lot of uh, live news feeds, and also uh, really great documentaries such as Free Solo. Now we have the Canon C300 Mark III, and above that, there's the older Canon C500 and the newer Canon C500 Mark II that came out at the end of the year last year. And that's pretty much where Canon is sitting with their C100 lineup today. They do have uh, the C700 and, and a couple of different versions of that camera, um, but that camera has kind of largely been a flop for Canon as most people at the C700 level tend to go with Airy or Red or a different route, maybe a, a Vericam, um, something like that to Sony Venice. You don't see a lot of people jumping on the C700. That was kind of a flop for Canon, but the C500, C500 Mark II and down is a really popular lineup of cameras for Canon. And last year when they announced the C500 Mark II, uh, that was a big breakthrough for Canon. It was the first time in a long time that Canon finally announced a camera worth taking a look at. I mean, don't get me wrong, Canon has made nice cameras over the years. Their, their 5D Mark IV was not a bad camera, neither was their EOS R or their EOS RP. Um, and neither was the C200. But to be honest, over the last six, seven years, Canon has really kind of dropped the ball. All of their cameras 
were crippled to some extent. The C2, C300 Mark II um, did not have 4K60 and came out at a launch price of $16,000. When the FS7 came out uh, at $8,000 featuring 4K60 and very uh, similar features to the C300 Mark II, both had something the other didn't have. This the, uh, the FS7 had the shoulder-mounted form factor, it had 4K60, it had four channels of audio um, that was easily accessible, and uh, the uh, electronic variable ND eventually came out in the FS7 Mark II. That was a big hit for Sony. Um, and then Canon had their, had their features uh, in the C300 Mark II. They had... Um, raw out without the, the necessity of an extension unit. Uh, they shot um, really beautiful footage, great low light performance, great autofocus. There's a lot to like about the C300 Mark II, but the fact that it launched at twice the price of the FS7, the original FS7, and the fact that it did not include 4K60, and that in HD the frame rates only went up to 120 frames per second and was severely cropped, were things that Canon just flopped on. And honestly, people people flocked to Sony and purchased the FS7 uh, largely over the C300 Mark II because those things were, uh, were so behind where Canon should have gone with the C300 Mark II. Now, don't get me wrong, the C300 Mark II is a widely used camera on documentary films and uh, corporate projects all over the world. However, there's no doubt that Sony's FS7 sold way, way more cameras than the C300 Mark II. You can look the stats up online. Um, Sony was just a lot more successful with their FS7. They were more innovative, and they put more features in their cameras at a better price point, and Canon took a beating for that. Uh, when they came out with the C200 a few years ago, that was their attempt to kind of capture back some of the market, the mid-tier market, but they flopped yet again because the C200 is a phenomenal camera in a lot of ways, but... The biggest problem with the C200 was it only shot to two different formats. Um, Canon RAW Lite, which is a beautiful format to shoot in, and it did shoot at 4K60 um, in Canon RAW Lite. However, Canon RAW Lite eats up a lot of space, and they only put one card slot in the camera. And you could only get like 15 minutes or less of footage shooting at like, 24 frames per second, a Canon raw light. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was a really small amount of time on a 128 gigabyte card. And so on the Canon, when you're shooting in Canon raw light, just for everyday shooting, you ate up a ton of space. And so people naturally would want to save Canon raw light for music videos or, or projects that uh, they don't mind the storage space, or maybe for certain shots within a project that could benefit from the raw. Um, and then have the ability to shoot in a nice 10-bit 422 color space uh, with good bit rates for everything else. But unfortunately, the C200's only other recording format was a very small, dinky MP4 file type. So that was it. You basically shot a little, dinky MP4 file type on this really expensive camera, or you shot RAW. There was no in-between codec, and that really killed a lot of the potential on the C200. It got a lot of really bad flack for that and uh, did not sell near as well as Canon had hoped. 
And so Canon just kind of have been lingering out there with their C C series cameras, just not really making the headways that they once made with them when the C series first came out. Meanwhile, Sony was crushing it with the FS7, just selling one after another, just unit after unit after unit. And for good reason, because they didn't cripple their cameras the way that Canon did. Canon also finally announced their mirrorless line, the EOS R, EOS RP, which were nice cameras. However, they were severely crippled. 4K was not full frame on the EOS R. It was severely cropped. It wasn't even cropped one and a half times like a standard crop camera. It was cropped way more than that. And that was a big problem for Canon. And their cameras just did not come out with the wow factor that people were hoping. And as such, their cameras sold well to photographers, but not near as well to videographers. So this has been kind of the, the cycle for Canon, coming out with cameras that should have a lot of potential, do have a lot of potential, but they just miss things that don't make sense, things that are real head scratchers. And as such, Canon's lost a lot of market share over the last few years, and Sony has overtaken Nikon in sales and is creeping up towards Canon for the number one spot. Canon, though, finally, towards the end of 2019, announced the C500 Mark II, and it went beyond everyone's expectations and was finally a camera from Canon that did not have any noticeable cripples. Is it a perfect camera? No, there is no such thing as a perfect camera. But the C500 Mark II was pretty dang close. It was a full-frame camera that shoots beautiful, beautiful footage, it shoots 4K 60 finally. It actually shoots um, higher resolutions than 4K. It shoots raw internal. It shoots 10-bit 422 internal. It has dual base ISO, so you have two base ISOs to shoot from, a lower IS base ISO for shooting uh, in bright situations, and then a higher base ISO for shooting in darker situations. And the camera itself had uh, a lot of add-ons and accessories you could put on it that allow you to expand up to four channels of audio or put a really nice, high-quality electronic viewfinder on the camera. Uh, you could run V-Lock batteries with an adapter if you wanted. It was just a really well-built camera that had superb autofocus, superb color, uh, color science, great low-light performance, great frame rates, great resolution options, internal RAW, internal 10-bit color, full frame. It just was a solid camera that you, you can't really look at and feel like there was anything missing. Is it perfect? Again, no, it's not, but it's close. It's a really good camera. And it was pricey. It was priced around $15,000, $16,000, still is there now, um, as it's a fairly new camera. And if you add any of the accessories to the $16,000 camera, uh, it's only going to increase the price. However, for $16,000, you can get a, a camera that I mean, and again, you're going to have to add things to it like memory cards and batteries and, and maybe uh, different accessories if you want to put on like a base plate or things like that. But for $16,000 out of the box, you get a camera that's ready to shoot that could do what not very many other cameras in the world can do. It's an exceptional camera. Then Canon kept up that momentum by announcing the 1DX Mark III. The 1DX Mark III um, took everything that was great about the 1DX Mark II and improved in all the areas that were lacking. It finally gave the 1DX uh, series cameras even better video features. The 1DX Mark II has always had 4K 60, but the 1D, 1DX Mark III has um, 
shoots at resolutions higher than 4K and it shoots in raw internal. It shoots at 10-bit 422 internal. All of these are things that were new for the 1DX series. And that camera is arguably the best hybrid photo video camera ever made. I don't even know if you can argue it. It really is. It's the best photo video hybrid camera ever made. High frame rates at 4K 60, higher resolutions in 4K internal raw, internal 10-bit 422 color at great solid bit rates, great low light performance, a blazing fast photo camera that shoots uh, beautiful imagery, and it's built like a tank. You could throw it in the water, you could run over it, and battery life lasts for forever, a great touch screen. I mean, it's a, it's a solid, solid camera. And the autofocus performance on it is insane. And that, that was another big step up for Cam Canon because it was another camera that just didn't appear to have any problems, didn't appear to have these glaring issues that their other cameras had. And then to keep the ball rolling even more, they finally announced the EOS R5 that had been rumored for a while. This was to, supposed to be their flagship mirrorless camera. And EOS R5 um, earlier in the year got an, uh, announced, had an announcement date where they basically dropped some hints at what it was going to be. They had a second announcement where they dropped some more hints. And then last week, they dropped even more talking about this full frame 8K mirrorless camera that can shoot 8K up to 30 frames per second, 4K up to 120 frames per second. It's full frame. It doesn't have a crop on the 4K or a crop on the 8K. It shoots 10-bit 422 color in 8K and does the same thing in 4K. And it also has raw internal. It's an amazing camera and it's Canon's first ever mirrorless camera to have IBIS in the camera, that's a new thing for Canon. Sony and Nikon have had it for a while. Sony especially, Panasonic's had that for a while. And finally, finally, Canon has it as well. This is a camera that is just making headway all over. And then to capitalize even further, last week they announced the C300 Mark III, which finally fixes all the things that people were upset with on the C300 Mark II. This is still a Super 35 camera. It is not full frame, but it is priced at $11,000, which is the exact same price as the Sony FX9. The Sony FX9 is a full frame camera, uh, unlike the C300 Mark III, but the C300 Mark III competes at the same price by offering some features that Sony's FX9 just doesn't have. It offers uh, 4K up to 120 frames per second. The FS9 only goes up to 60. It offers a touchscreen. FX9 does not have that. It offers dual gain output, which is an incredible feature that allows the camera to achieve a higher dynamic range by shooting two frames per frame giving you one exposed for the highlights, one exposed for the shadows, and combining those two uh, images into a single frame while it's shooting. That's absolutely incredible and allows it to achieve a higher dynamic range with yet a sensor size that's smaller than full frame. The camera is no doubt going to be a massive, massive hit uh, for Canon. And it also has internal RAW and 10-bit 422 and things like that, whereas the FX9 um, has only external RAW and requires an extension unit in addition to a RAW recorder. So Canon's C300 Mark III is going to be yet another camera by Canon that's not crippled. 
So they are on a roll. It seems like Canon finally got the point from its customer base that, hey, we're not going to deal with you crippling our cameras anymore. Their sales remained high from the photo division, and they did sell a lot of video cameras. However, they knew they lost a lot of their customer base, and so they came out swinging over the last six months trying to get their customer base back. And I, for one, think they're going to get a lot of customers back. Uh, these cameras are incredible. They're world-class cameras without any noticeable um, problems that are going to win a lot of people over. But does that make these cameras the right camera for you? And that's, that's kind of what I want to get into today. I think that the C300 Mark III and the C500 Mark II, um, those are cameras that you're you're going to purchase based on your the current glass that you have, the types of projects you do. Um, would those cameras be better than the FX9? We'll talk a little bit about that later. But what I want to focus on more right now is the EOS R5. And the reason why I want to focus more on the EOS R5 is that's a camera that we don't know its price yet, but we can assume it's probably going to be somewhere around the $3,500 to $4,500 range. And at that level, this hybrid mirrorless camera, photo video camera, is going to be a hot camera for a lot of people because it's attainable by not just the mid-level mid videographers, but even the more uh, smaller budget shooters who are looking for a really competitive, real well-rounded camera um, that's affordable. This is going to be a camera for the masses. And that's why I think that a lot of people are talking about this camera today because it's an affordable camera for the hybrid shooters out there. But the question is, is the EOS R5 the, the camera to get right now? Is it the right camera for you? And that's a really tough question because it's going to depend a lot on what you do, what kind of glass you have, what your experience has been. Have you been a Sony shooter for a long time? Are you a, a long time Canon shooter? All those things are going to weigh into the Canon EOS R5. But what I want to do is talk about some of its highlighted features and then some of the things that people I don't think are talking about that you should pay attention to. The EOS R5, to recap, is a full frame 8K camera that can shoot uncropped full-frame 8K footage up to 30 frames per second and uncropped 4K footage up to 120 frames per second. It has 10-bit um, 422 internal as well as a raw internal option um, and is also obviously going to be a photo camera. We don't know the, the resolution yet or the megapixels that it's going to be, uh, but we can safely assume it's going to be probably 42 and above based on the fact that it is shooting 8K video. So it has to have a higher megapixel sensor in order to achieve that high of a resolution. And it's a camera that is uh, built similar form factor to the EOS R, and it has IBIS internal. It hits a lot of check bo uh, boxes for a lot of people. But does that make it the perfect camera? I think it's tough to say right now because we don't know the rest of the information. We obviously don't know the pricing. We don't know exactly what uh, resolution the stills or uh, photos are going to be at. And we don't know certain things like record times or potential overheating issues, rolling shutter issues, things like that. Those are things that have yet to come out that are going to weigh heavily into whether or not you should purchase this camera. What I want to do is talk about 
some of the things that we need to be paying attention to um, as we get closer and closer to this camera's release date. One is going to be the low light performance. Traditionally, most cameras that shoot at high resolutions or photo cameras that shoot at high megapixels, which this camera is probably going to do both because if it shoots 8K, that means it's got to have a high resolution photo uh, sensor inside of it. Traditionally, high resolution cameras like that um, give you more detailed footage, but at the expense of low light performance. A good example is if you look at Sony's a7 III versus a7R III. These are cameras that came out uh, pretty close in time to each other. The R3 came out first, then the 7.3. Both cameras uh, are similar in a lot of ways, but the headlining features that differentiate the two are the a7 III is a 24 megapixel camera that shoots great um, photos and video in low light and is really clean, low light performance. And the a7R3 is a camera that does not have quite near quite as good a low light performance, but does shoot beautiful high resolution stills. Those are where those two cameras differentiate from each other. One is a 24 megapixel camera, one is a 42 megapixel camera. When you look at the two side by side, the a7 III is significantly better in low light than the a7R3. Does that make the a7R3 bad in low light? No, it does not. It just means it's nowhere to the point that the a7 III is. And the a7 III is really, really good. And I think you're gonna see a similar thing with the EOS R5. The EOS R5 shooting at 8K means that its low light performance is gonna be knocked. It's gonna be knocked because there's no way it can offer the same low light performance as a smaller megapixel camera would or a smaller resolution camera would because the sensor has um, more pixels to work with. The more pixels that are on a sensor, the smaller the pixels are. The less pixels that are on the sensor, the bigger the pixels are. The reason why the a7S II is notoriously so good in low light, just like the a7S, is because it was only a 12 megapixel sensor. Had it's they're all they were all full frame cameras. The sensor size itself is the same between all of them. It's just that a 12 megapixel camera has larger pixels because its sensor is only made up of 12 pixels, whereas a 42 megapixel camera sensor is made up with 42 pixels. And so the sensor size is the same, it's just the pixel size and the number of pixels that is different. The more pixels you have and the smaller your pixels are, the um, the worse your low light performance is. And the larger the uh, pixels are on the sensor, the better the low light performance is. And so that's why cameras like the A7S, A7S II were so good in low light, whereas cameras like the A7R3 and A7R4 are nowhere near as good in low light. They're not bad, they're just nowhere near as good. The A7 III found a pretty good happy medium. It was not as good as the A7S or A7S II in low light, but it was pretty close because Sony found a way to get 24, um, megapixels on their sensor um, and, and and backlight them and have them look pretty pretty dang good for being twice the amount of pixels as a A7S or A7S II would have. So when you look at this, the point of all this is that Sony did a good job with A7S and A7S II by giving us cameras that had larger pixels so it can absorb so much light. And then they eventually found a way to give us a camera that 
was not as good in low light, but was still pretty good. It was a happy medium. That's the A7 III. Then you have the A7R III, more, more megapixels, not as good low light performance. And I think that's where the EOS R5 is going to live. Because if it's offering 8K, that means it has a lot of megapixels on the sensor, which means it's going to be like an R3 in that it's not going to have as good a low light performance. That's something to keep in mind. If you are shooting photos and video inside of a studio, if you are working under controlled lighting situations 90% of the time, that may not matter to you. But for those of you out there who shoot a lot of run and gun projects in a lot of natural light and, and maybe you work in some poor lighting conditions from time to time, that's something you really need to think about because these eight, this 8K camera that that is coming out by Canon, it's gonna have so much resolution that it's not gonna be able to absorb the same type of light and have the same type of low light performance that an A7S or A7S2 type of camera would have. So that's something you really need to think about. Now, you can downscale large resolution images and get much better low light performance because a lot of the, the perceived noise kind of goes away when you downscale the image, but it still does not give you quite the same low light performance you would get out of a camera that shoots its image um, with larger pixels to begin with at a smaller resolution. So you could shoot 8K on the EOS R5 theoretically and downscale it to HD or 4K and have cleaner results than you would in that with looking at the native 8K footage, but it's not going to give you the same type of results as the A7S, A7S II type of cameras would. Now, again, this is speculative. We have not actually seen um, this camera in action really yet, but it's a pretty safe bet based on just technology and the way all this type of stuff works. So when you look at this camera and you realize how many how how much resolution it has, don't get locked in on that 8K and think that's the have all be all because it comes at a price and that price is going to be low light performance. The other problem with 8K is that and, it's, and I'm not trying to say 8K is bad, but there are just trade-offs. And another trade-off with 8K is the fact that it's going to eat your memory cards alive. It's going to cost you a ton of storage space to shoot in 8K, both on your memory cards and on your drives when you get back home. This really will make a real-world difference to you as it could make the cost of shooting footage on this camera a lot more. Hard drive and memory card costs have come down significantly over the years, but it doesn't change the fact that the 8K footage is gonna eat up a ton of space and you are going to find yourself having to buy a lot more drives and carry a lot more memory cards with you to be able to handle all of the, the storage requirements that come with 8K. That also means if you're out shooting a, a video all day long, let's say you're on a project for like a week and you're, you're shooting during the day and backing up at night, that's gonna make your backup times a lot longer. And these are things you have to think about. If you're using this uh, for personal work and you're just kind of shooting some stuff and coming home and playing around with it, it may not affect you very much. But if you are shooting for a living or at least part-time and you have to back up your footage every night and you can't go to bed till all your footage is backed up and your cards are prepped for the next day, that's a real world thing that's going to happen to you. You're going to have to deal with much longer dump times in the evenings if you're having to dump a lot of 8K footage over. And that's going to you're going to have to stay up later and spend more time dealing with that. And you have to ask yourself, is that worth it to be able to have 8K footage? 
Now, what would be the benefit of having 8K? Why would you want it? 8K is good for VFX work, special effects work, um, when you want to key things out and put special effects or CGI type things in a project. That's why higher resolution cameras by like RED that shoot 8K like uh, the Monstro, that's why cameras like that are used for um, shows like Stranger Things on Netflix because there's a lot of VFX going on and they can take that camera and shoot at higher resolutions and have tons of resolution there for the VFX artists to work with. Um, so that's one benefit, but I'm wagering that most of the people I listen to this podcast are not doing a lot of heavy um, special effects work. So what would be the 8K benefit for you? Well, that would be croppability. It would be the ability to crop into an image and pull out um, good looking files a lot closer on the image uh, in ways that you would not be able to do if you were cropping in on HD or 4K. So that's something that, that, that you have to think about is the ability to crop in on 8K. Um, but for me, I don't, I don't feel that 8K is worth, being able to crop in on 8K is worth the expense of all the memory space, all the times you're gonna spend at night backing everything up, and quite frankly, all of the um, low light performance you're going to lose because you're gonna you're gonna lose low light performance. It's just the way it, it's gonna work. And that means if you are cropping in on an image, if you are expecting to crop in on an image that's not that great in low light, you're gonna see a lot of grain and a lot of noise, which is gonna make the image not look so good, which is gonna totally negate the whole point of having 8K. So I don't, I, if you're, if you're going to crop in on 8K in a really well lit situation, then, you know, it won't be so bad. But if you're trying to, if you're an, an outdoor shooter shooting some wildlife late in the evening and you plan on shooting an 8K and cropping in on your image and getting a beautiful image, think again, you're going to be cropping in on a noisy image and it's not going to give you this magical, beautiful look that's going to be, um, Per pristine just because you shot in 8K. You're going to be cropping in on a noisy image and it's not going to look the way you think it's going to look. And on top of that, I think it's worth noting that cropping in on, on an image is not the same thing as zooming in on an image. When you zoom in on an image in the field with a lens, optically, what you are doing is changing the depth of field. That doesn't happen when you crop in and post. So the look of a cropped in zoom shot is not going to be the same look as a shot that is um, zoomed in in the field. And so it's not this magical thing that's gonna allow you to take your 24 to 105 and turn it into 24 to 400 because it's just not gonna give you that look that a 400 millimeter lens would give you. There is a difference. So. I feel like a lot of people, when they hear 8K, they're like, oh my gosh, think of everything I could do with it. But they don't think about the fact that cropping in on 8K is not the same thing as zooming in with the lens. It's not going to look as great as you think it's going to be unless your shot was really well lit. It's going to come at the cost of a very high expense for storage and memory cards. And it's going to slow you down in backing up everything in the evenings. And to top it all off, it's going to eat your computer alive. 8K, to edit 8K footage, you are going to have to have a blazing fast computer. That's another massive expense you're gonna to have to think about. And I've read where the 
EOS R5 is going to be shooting at an H.265 codec. H.265 is a newer codec that came out several years ago. Um, it's a new form of H.264, and it allows you to store roughly twice the amount of information in the same amount of space as H.264. But the problem is, is your computer has to decompress that H.265 file to read it and then recompress it to play it. And as such, it's going to really take a very high-powered computer, not just to playback and edit 8K, but to playback and edit an H.265 file that's very, very compressed and has to be decompressed to be read and then recompressed to play. So you are going to have 8K H.265 files that are going to basically destroy your computer's performance. It's gonna, your computer's not going to perform well, which means you're going to have to really upgrade your hardware to be able to edit this footage back. Now you can, uh, of course, take that footage and um, export it or transcode it as a different file type like ProRes, but that's only gonna eat up even more space, costing you even more hard drive uh, expenses and slow down your um, process even more if you have to transcode your files every time you come home from shooting. So these are all things to think about. It sounds sexy, 8K sounds so sexy. It's like, man, I'm gonna shoot 8K footage, that's twice my 4K. But it there is a lot of other factors that go into 8K other than simple high resolution. It comes at a lot of cost. And these are things that if you do this for fun, maybe you're willing to work around that. But if you do this for a living or even part-time, these are all things to think about because they're going to affect your, your performance with these cameras in the field. Another thing to think about with the EOS R5 is its record limits. We don't know yet if there are record limits and if there are what they are going to be. But I'm going to venture to say, and this is totally speculative, but I'm going to venture to say that Canon's EOS R5 is going to have some severe record limits. I could totally be wrong, but I'm thinking it probably will. And the reason why I say that is look at the look at the Sony a7 III. That camera overheats a ton. So does the a7R IV. They overheat because you have these weather-sealed camera bodies that are shooting 4K internal. And as such, the camera bodies get really hot and they overheat. And that's a major problem with Sony cameras. And Sony has said that part of the reason why they haven't announced an a7S III yet is because they were having major overheating issues with it shooting 4K60. The EOS R5 shoots 8K30 and 4K up to 120, and its body size isn't that much bigger than the Sony's, and it has arguably probably going to have better weather sealing because Canon is known for having really good weather sealed cameras. So if you have this weather sealed camera that doesn't have a way to vent, and you are giving it 4K up to 120 frames per second and 8K up to 30 frames per second, it's going to get freaking hot in there. And I just have to think that the only way they could possibly give it those two features, 8K30 and 4K120, is to cap the record times in order to keep the camera from overheating and like destroying itself inside. And that that's a real thing that is going to, I think, going to play a factor into this camera. I don't think that's something that they're obviously going to to, to going to market <laughs> because that that kind of takes away from the lure of this 8k uh, camera or this 4k 120 frame per second camera but 
I'm thinking that is probably going to be a real thing that we're going to see is that the camera's going to have record limits, severe record limits, in order for it to be able to achieve these uh, types of frame rates and resolutions. What are those record limits going to be? I don't know. It could be could be fairly decent, like five, 10 minutes, or it could be something short. Maybe 4K 120 is only eight second or 10 second bursts, kind of like uh, uh, 240 frames per second is on the Sony FS5. You know, maybe it's just gonna be short bursts, or maybe the uh, 8K 30 is gonna be capped at like three or four or five minutes to keep it from overheating and melting on the inside. I don't know, but I'm just going to venture to say that similar to how I think the low light performance is not going to be as good, I also think the camera is going to have severe record limits and may or may not overheat. I will say I don't think it will really overheat. Canon is really good about making cameras that uh, don't come out of the factory with a lot, with a lot of technical flaws. So I don't think it's going to overheat. I just think it's going to have massive record limits in order to prevent it from overheating. So that's something that you're going to need to, to look out for when this Canon, Canon camera comes out. So I'm not trying to bash the EOS R5. I actually think it's fantastic that Canon has done this. Canon has, is pushing the limits. They are changing the way they've ran their business um, over the last several years, they're being innovative. They're trying to come out, be a market leader in innovation, and I love it and I respect the hell out of it. But I think that in order for them to hit some of the technical achievements that they've made, there are going to be limitations. And I don't think this is Canon going to be crippling these cameras by any means. I think it's just technology. I think that they're going to hit... Uh, Te technolo technological? Boy, that's a tough word to say. I think they're going to hit um, problems with technology that we have not been able to overcome yet. The overheating issues, um, high resolution coming at the expense of low light performance, and things like that. Being able to put a, a codec uh, in the camera that can record efficiently, but that's going to be really hard on your computer. These are all things that aren't necessarily Canon crippling the camera. It's just where we are in technology today. And so I think that I think that these are things that are going to be talked about as the camera starts to come, more information starts to come out about it, the pricing, um, a more accurate release date, and when more people are able to start shooting with it. So these are things that I want you guys to pay attention to and to look at um, because they could really weigh into how this camera is to work with. And, uh, and that could make all all of the things I talked about today could make a difference for you on whether or not this is the right camera for you to get. Now, that being said, where does this leave Sony? You know, Canon has come out with this amazing uh, technological advancement. And again, even with these te technology, the technological um, limitations that I think it's going to have, it still is innovative. And where does that leave Sony? Sony I love Sony and I've been shooting Sony for a long, long time, many years. I've been shooting, I've had Sony cameras for literally 10 years now. I really like Sony cameras, um, but I'll be honest, you know, I'm going to call it the way I see it. And, and Sony, as great as Sony is and as innovative as Sony has been over the years, over the last five plus years, they've really slowed down. In June of 2015, Sony announced the uh, A7R2, and it at the time was the first 4K full frame uh, 
camera on internal camera on the market, first camera that could shoot internal 4K full frame. And it was a huge advancement in technology for them. It also had IBIS in the camera. Um, and then not long after that, they came out with the A7S II, which was the same thing, only with better low light performance. Um, and uh, it also had 120 frames per second in HT, which was another uh, milestone at the time. But here we are, that was 2015. This is 2020, That's that was five years ago. And in five years, we have not left 4K 30, we have not left HD 120, and we are still shooting at the same 8-bit, 100 megabit per second codec that we got for 4K five years ago, and we are still shooting at the same 8-bit, 50 megabit per second uh, HD codec we got before that. We have not gained any resolution uh, increases, any frame rate inc increases, or any uh, codec increases in terms of megabits per second and uh, color space in over five years. And for a company that was so innovative for so long and still has been in terms of autofocus technology and their really blazing fast uh photography camera A9, A9 Mark II, those are great um, techno technological advances, but where is the increase in video performance on their mirrorless cameras? It hasn't been there. In fact, in a lot of ways, we've gone backwards. The A7 III, um, which is not an, which is you know no different in terms of, of frame rates and resolution and, and codecs that we had five years ago, is not the greatest video camera in the world. It shoots a nice image, but its HD is awful. It's so soft and has so many problems with aliasing that it. I, I would be embarrassed to turn over an HD shot from my a7 III. And that stinks because the a7 III forces you to shoot in HD if you wanna shoot at 60 frames or above. So if you wanna shoot on a gimbal and do a real estate video, for instance, and you wanna shoot it at HD at 60 frames per second, you are forced to shoot in HD at a really poor codec and the HD looks awful. It looks awful because it does line skipping and it, it looks just, it looks so, so, so bad. And honestly, the only two cameras that Sony has, mirrorless cameras that have decent HD, is the A7S and A7S II. The rest of their cameras HD, in my opinion, is not good at all. And that's what we have to deal with in order to have frame rates of 60 and above. And they're 4K, man, like it's nice, the, the image quality looks nice, but you can't push the files around because it's 8-bit and it only shoots at 100 megabits per second. And it's frustrating because I, as a Sony user, I love their cameras. I think their autofocus technology is good. I like the image quality uh, in general. But over the last five years, we haven't really gotten anywhere with video. The only thing we've really done in five years time in terms of video is autofocus. We've gotten really great autofocus performance. We've started to get eye autofocus in video, and those are great features to have. But... Where is the increase in, in, in performance? It's not there. And that's really frustrating. And when you look at the bigger picture here, Sony's FX9 really, it, it's a great camera. It really is. But in all honesty, it's not a whole lot different than the FS7. Um, the form factor is the same, is virtually the same, which is a good thing. Uh, it's really similar to the FS7 Mark II in that it has a locking E-mount and an electronic variable ND and things like that. The form factor itself is very similar, and those are all good things. Um, 
But the camera hasn't really gone anywhere in terms of it still shoots 4K 60 and it still shoots 10-bit 422 color. There is no RAW. There is no frame rates higher than 4K 60 and 4K. There is no um, higher resolutions or anything like that. The camera is marketed as a 6K camera, but it doesn't shoot 6K. It is 6K downscaled to 4K. So it's really just a 4K image downscaled downscaled. And it looks really good and it is better than the FS7's image. Um, but we, ha we haven't gotten the internal RAW and the RAW on that camera is a disaster. If you want to shoot RAW on the FS7, FS7 Mark II or the FX9, you have to have Sony's extension unit, which is this giant brick thing you have to put on the back of the camera. And that forces you to use V-Lock batteries, which are even bigger, heavier things they have to add to the back of the camera. And then you have to add a RAW recorder to all of that just to shoot RAW. And that's a, that's a disaster. And the RAW on the FX9 is gonna be great. It's 16-bit RAW, which is phenomenal. However, it is such a, a, a crapshoot to try to build it up for 16-bit RAW when when the C300 Mark III and the C200 and this and the C500 Mark II are all doing raw internal, even the EOS R5 and 1DX Mark III are doing raw internal. Why do we not have that on the FX9? The FX9 is an improvement over the FS7 in terms that it's full frame and in terms that it has a dual base ISO for better low light performance. It has a better LCD screen. It has really amazing autofocus among some other tweaks and things that make it better than the FS7. But overall, that's really the only improvements we've gotten. And the FS7, guys, was announced in 2014. That was six years ago. And that's all we've done in six years with this camera model is make it full frame, give it dual base ISO, a little bit better external parts, like a better screen, and give it better color science, which is really nice. The color science is really great on the FX9. It's the best color of any of the mid-tier or lower-tier Sony cameras available outside of the Venice high-end camera. But that's, that's all we've done in six years. And that means, because this camera is not better than that, is not offering more than that, that means that when the FX6 gets announced, which should be on April 30th, today's April 27th, the release date of the FX6 was supposed to be April 20th, but uh, Canon came out on April 20th with their EOS R5, so Sony pushed their release date back, which is kind of scary, um, but the release date for the FX6 is supposed to be in three days, and you have to wonder how good can the FX6 actually be. It's going to be a lower tier camera than the FX9, and the FX9 is already missing so much, so what, and you know it's not going to be better than the FX9, so Knowing that, that means that FX6 is just, it's going to probably be a an average camera, a marginal improvement over the FS5 Mark II, just like the FX9 was a marginal improvement over the FS7 Mark II. And, and, and if that's the case, if that really is the case, where does that leave the A7S3? Where does that leave it? Because the A7S3, you know Sony is not going to want to make it better than the FX9 or better than the FX6 even. So how good can the A7S 3 be without stepping on the toes of these cinema cameras? That's, that's the scary thing today. We, we can only go so far before they cripple uh, the sales on their other two cameras. And that, that freaks me out a little bit.
And it is possible that Sony could release an A7S 3 and say, screw it, and eat into the sales of their um, more mid-tier cameras like the FX6 and FX9. Um, and that that's certainly a possibility. It's like Steve Jobs said, if you don't cannibalize your own equipment or your own um, products, someone else will. And, and, and so it's possible Sony could take that um, and, and run with it, that idea, and, and go ahead and, and offer something that's going to eat into their higher-end cameras. Uh, but I just have my doubts. I just have my doubts. And that, that's a little scary, I think, for people that have invested, like me, who have invested tens of thousands of dollars in Sony equipment. I did the math the other day. It's gonna cost, it would cost me like $40,000 to switch over to Canon. And I'm just not going to do that. I'm not. I want you to get me, I don't want you to get me wrong here. The A7S III, even if it was better in terms of paper specs than FX9 or FX6, that doesn't mean it's a better camera. Those cameras are different. They're built-in ND filters. They have, uh, the FX9 is a shoulder-mountable camera out of the box. They have, um, are going to probably have longer record times because they're built with vents and, and fans and things like that. And those cameras are are going to have um, built-in audio inputs. Like the FX9 can do four channels of audio internal, uh, just like the FS7 series cameras can. And those are things that uh, an A7S III can't compete with. And, and no one who is planning on buying an FX9 is probably going to buy an A7S III over it because you're not buying the FX9 for the specs, you're buying the FX9 for the workflow. You're buying it because it's a shoulder-mountable camera that has easy-to-work-with file types, four channels of audio internal, and built-in ND filters. That's why you buy a camera like an FS7 or an FX9. So the A7S III is not going to take many of those shooters and have them say, oh, I would rather have a hybrid mirrorless camera than a shoulder-mountable camera with ND filters and audio inputs. I mean, the truth is that's, that's not going to happen for the most part. But there will be some people that would buy an, a cheaper, more affordable A7S III um, over an FX6, for example, in order to um, get better specs if the A7S III came out with better specs. So I think Sony knows that in the back of their head that while maybe they won't lose many FX9 sales to an a to a better spec A7S III, they will lose some, and they will certainly lose some FX6 sales. And so the question is, do they care enough about losing those sales that they are going to cripple their A7S III, or are they willing to cannibalize their higher end or mid-tier cameras in order to put out a product that can compete with the EOS R5. That's what I'm curious to see. For me personally, I'm not interested in an 8K camera. Um, I would rather see Sony come out with uh, a, a camera that has a 6K sensor like the like the uh, a7 III has, um, but that only shoots 4K files. I would rather have a 6K downscaled to 4K image on the mirrorless camera, kind of like the FX9 does or the a7 III already does that. Uh, I would love I would love to have that instead because you can have better low light performance because you're not trying to shoot with this with an 8K camera uh, sensor and yet still have a pristine image quality and file sizes that you can uh, can manage. I would like to see an A7S III 
a camera that can do 4K up to 120 frames per second that has uh, a 10-bit 422 color codec along with it and retains a lot of the low light performance that we have in cameras like the a7s2 and a7 III. I think a camera like that would be a good selling camera for Sony because I think people would eventually see that the low light performance out of that 4k camera would be and the and the easier to edit files and the and the smaller file sizes would be more desirable than Canon's 8K camera that is not as good in low light and that eats you alive in file size and really cripples and slows down your computer. I think at the end of the day, Sony and A7S3 like that would compete well. It's just a matter of will they do it, and that's that's something that we're going to see and we're going to have to see here shortly if they don't want people to switch to Canon, and. As for people switching to Canon, am I going to switch to Canon? The answer is no. I think that Canon is offering cameras today that are um, more innovative than Sony. I think there's no question about that. I can say that even as a Sony shooter. I'm not afraid to say that. However, I think that Canon's, Canon's cameras are not quite the type of camera I like to work with. I personally, with the FX9 and FS7 Mark II that I have today, I personally like shoulder mountable cameras better. Cameras, you can mount the C-series cameras on your shoulder, but you have to buy base plates and extension arms and things like that. I like that the FS and FX9 series cameras can go on the shoulder um, out of the box. You can tweak it to make it a little better for you, but I like a camera that's built with that form factor better. I also really like the way Sony's autofocus system works. Canon's autofocus system is great as well. I'm just comfortable with the Sony autofocus system. Um, I also really like Sony, the FS7, FX9 camera's ability to record four channels of audio internally. It does it with um, two XLR inputs on the side, and then the hot shoe allows you to achieve two more channels of audio. The FS5 cameras cannot do this, but the sevens and the nines can. I like that better than Canon's approach, which is if you want to have four channels of audio, you have to buy um, this extension unit and you have to run V-Lock batteries. I don't like that. I would much rather run a camera that can achieve two additional channels of audio by just plugging a, a, an adapter in the hot shoe. So I like that approach better. And because of that and the shoulder mountability, the electronic variable ND, which is so amazing, those are things that I think make the FS and FX9 cameras um, so great to work with. And I don't want to leave that because for my shooting, that is so good for me. I also am very comfortable with Sony cameras. I've worked with them for a long time. I know their menu systems. I know how to color grade their cameras, how to expose their log files. I also have a lot invested in Sony cameras and it just would not be worth the financial um, loss that I would endure to switch to Canon. I'd probably exaggerate a little. I know it probably wouldn't really cost me 40,000 to switch. I think by the time I sold my Sony gear, it would cost me more like 30, 25, 30,000. Um, but that's still a lot of money. It's still a lot of money. And I'm not gonna pay that kind of money just to get some better specs. And specs aren't everything. I may hate working with the C500 Mark II or the C303 or the EOS R5. I also may love it, but I'll never know because I don't plan on switching because I'm comfortable where I'm at. I just hope that Sony 
will take notice of what's going on with Cam. And we know that they're taking notice. I just hope that they take it to heart and that they offer cameras that can compete better. They don't have to be the same thing. I don't have to have an 8K camera. In fact, I'd rather not have one. But give us a dang good 4K camera with better codecs, better frame rates, and good low-light performance. That, that would sell well. And take the FX9 and give it some better features. There's no reason why the FX9 can't shoot raw internally. I, I think that's a load of crap. So many other cameras out there can do it. Um, and if you got the EOS R5 and 1DX3 doing it, and these Blackmagic cameras, these pocket cinema cameras doing it, and the C300 Mark III, the C200, C502 doing it, come on, Sony, why, why, why do we have to have the stupid extension unit plus RAW recorder to have RAW on the FS7 and FX9? That's ridiculous. So I hope that they do fix those things. I hope that they do give us those uh, features and improvements, um, but... Only time will tell. As far as 8K goes, I think that where we are today is 8K is a very attractive spec for a lot of people, but it's not the have-all, be-all. It's going to cost you a lot, and it's going to be difficult to work with in post. I really think 8K is better left for people who are going to be doing a lot of special effects in their projects or for people who are going to be working in a studio. I think that 8K, people, especially people that follow this podcast that shoot a lot of wildlife-type stuff or outdoor stuff, I think that 8K is not going to be what you think it's going to be because you're going to find out that the low-light performance isn't there. And when you crop in on a camera's image that's already not the greatest in low light, you're not going to be as happy with the results as you think you're going to be. I think you'd be better off waiting for a camera that has better low light performance and that has more manageable file sizes. That's that's my two cents on that. Am I telling you not to buy the EOS R5? Absolutely not. If you're a Canon shooter and you have Canon glass, I think it's a hell of a camera. Uh, we Again, we don't know everything about it yet. Uh, we have a lot to learn. We don't know what the rolling shutter is going to be like. We don't know what the uh, low light's going to be like or the limitations uh, that the camera has, but it is still probably going to be a really nice camera either way. And so if you are a Canon shooter, I say go for it. But if you're a Sony shooter, should you switch? I say no. I say stay where you are and let's let's see what they do in three days with the FX6 and let's see what they say about the A7S3. I hope that on April 30th, they give us some information on the S3. I really do. I think they need to. Even if they don't have it ready, give us some dang information. It's past time. Thanks, guys, for listening to this podcast. If you want to chat more about it, comment on the filming with Josh Page, and let's create a discussion about Canon's future and Sony's future. Let's talk about the EOS R5, the C300 Mark III, and the C502. Let's talk about the A7S III, and let's talk about what you want to do and what you should do moving forward. If you're not a member of the Filming with Josh group, be sure to join it. That is Filming with Josh on Facebook. We just hit 500 members a couple days ago. That's awesome. That's 500 people on a one group, one page where people do nothing but talk about video production. Stay safe out there. I'll talk to you guys soon. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today. Yeah.